This short code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the short code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. We're here to give you an honest inside look at medical school and how it works. And how it doesn't help me with that, I've got some med-ed all-stars with me today who are now struggling to figure out how to adjust the volume on their headphones. (laughs) Why did you have to draw attention to it? None of them have numbers on them. So I'm just kind of turning the dial down on all of them. I believe they're. I believe they do have numbers on them. I do. I do. You. She's doing oh. the. She's doing the follow up by cord, and I'm just doing the trial by error. Nice. Every I turn it down and see which one affects my microphone. This is how. I mean. Or my headphones. This is how. This is how the professionals do it. Yeah, I have to admit, it, I think I thought you were going to just say that are struggling, and then it was just going to stop there. What an inaccurate statement. Yeah. <laughs> say hi, M2 Nicole Hines. Sup, nerds. Say mahalo, M2 AJ Chowdhury. Mahalo? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good job. Okay. I, didn't, I didn't call and repeat, That's sorry. That's cultural appropriation. Say, <laughs> say, wow. namas, say namaste, M2, M, I'm sorry, M4 Mackenzie Walhoff. Isn't namaste? I don't know. <laughs> and, and Aline, you get to say... 안녕, 잘 지내. Go ahead. Just, I don't want to get canceled, so no. <laughs> Isn't mahalo thank you in Hawaiian? Did you mean like aloha? I think so, yeah. I think mahalo is thank you. Well, say thank you then. Thank me. No, okay. Thank me. Are you dead, Dave? How much do you want? Your ego is exploding right now. (laughs) Keeping us woke, Dave. We've got a lot to talk about this week, including our sponsor, Panacea Financial. But I'll save them until later in the show. Right now, I want to talk about the ways that medical school and residency programs are going outside the traditional process of application, personal statement, interview, admit, in a bid to learn more about their applicants. I recently found out about Casper, dun, dun, dun. Uh, which if you're not aware, was not aware. I'm not aware. Is an online 90 minute situational judgment test administered by Altus Assessments Incorporated that a handful of schools have begun to use, about 49 schools at this point. 49 MD schools, 12 DO, and 12 DO schools. Okay, that just sort of puts it into perspective for you. Basically, the idea is applicants respond to written or video scenarios and then answer questions about them. The goal is to test the applicant's intrinsic response to particular scenarios and not scientific knowledge. That's what I have read. So it tests collaboration, equity, empathy, ethics, communication, problem solving, professionalism, resilience, self-awareness, and motivation. It's so many things. Yeah, 90 minutes. Apparently test four. <laughs> I think we already know. I think just from tone of voice, we already have some idea of how Mackenzie feels about this particular test. It's mixed, I would it's say. It's not fun. We, we Did you take it? Yeah, the I think my application cycle year was the first year where it started getting big. I actually made my school list initially to not include any Casper schools because there are so few of them. But then, like immediately, five of them at the start of the application cycle that were on my list, including state schools, wanted Casper scores, so I ended up having to take it. So, what's the experience like when you take this test? Do you remember? Yeah, I was not a fan of it. It's supposed to be a situational judgment test where you read a scenario and then and they have practice tests and they describe the test itself so it's not not like i'm saying anything against their terms of service well thank god taking the test so it's you read a scenario and then your time to write responses and i didn't think it was very accurate for what it was trying to assess because you can't really get someone's ethics out of somewhat formulaic tests like that where I almost felt like most of the, most of the test was actually a typing speed test, and you're just kind of copying and pasting in what is the most ethical thing to do in these situations, which is always be a good person, and you don't really get to expand. With our bioethics classes where we talk about the gray areas and how you can assess like 
very moral choices or or morality requiring choices in medicine it doesn't really assess anything like that so at least in my experience each question is timed you get like how many minutes i don't remember the specifics i just remember there being a lot of essays to type up under a time situation it was overall 90 minutes and i think you get a 10 minute break in the middle i don't like it there are written scenarios and then there are video scenarios the video the 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 sample ones i saw were like a minute and it sounds it's just, like kind of a written version of the multiple mini interviews sure. that a lot of schools have been incorporating so i have three problems with casper as i understand how casper works there are two it hasn't i don't think it's been validated in any way mm. to show whether it's actually measuring what it says it measures. How, how can you measure those things and know if it's measuring those things? There are two peer-reviewed papers on Casper. Both were written by Kelly Dore, uh, develop, who developed the test and is co-founder and VP of growth for Altus Assessments. So I have my suspicions that that might, that, that, that might not be, that there might be a conflict of interest. <laughs> it also came from McMaster University where yes. the MFI was developed. Yeah. No. Yeah, there's quite a few problems with it. And you also don't ever get to see your score, so you don't know where you place ethically. So right, you don't see the score, you just see right. You your might quartile, right? you might see a quartile if your school is uh part of the pilot that is giving out quartiles. Mm-hmm. But oh, not everybody okay. sees a quartile. Is, so, when it comes to ethical scenarios, like hypotheticals, usually there's a lot of like nuance to real life situations that yeah. play into it. Yes. Is they there say, is there like a correct answer no. always in in these or like how, how they, who they, chooses what the right response is? So Casper says there are no wrong answers to the scenarios. Then they go on to say that a low score doesn't mean that you failed; it just means that you didn't have as strong answers as those who t- others who took the test. I'm, so that fails to measure anything. So I'm not sure what the difference is. I, I feel like the Casper test. This this is making me think of taking like AP Lang and Comp exam, and you have yeah. to write a convincing essay. Why five anything, paragraph Emily whatever. style? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I I don't understand the difference between you know there are no right answers. But there are wrong ways to answer the questions, or that there are more right way. There are there are no wrong answers, but we're still not going to accept you because of your answers, <laughs> right? Is that what you're trying yeah. to say? Yeah. I think the only I think if you wanted to argue that there is a a benefit that comes out of it, I think it would be that once you're in medical school, the step one and step two exams are starting to heavily skew towards having a lot more ethical questions, and so maybe it helps you to start thinking about that kind of stuff earlier. And so you have maybe a little bit more practice okay, thinking fine. about ethical questions before you have to throw them on a board. Because they're getting they're getting pretty rough. I think 10% now of step one and step two questions are like ethics and okay. communication. Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can see the value in that. I'm just not sure that I see the value in A, making people take Jump through yet another hoop mm-hmm. to to get into med school. Spend money on another thing. Yeah. And yeah, oh, I by the way, 12, 12 bucks to it? take the test, $12. Oh, 12, that's oh, it? Okay. $12 for each school you're submitting results to. Who knows how much schools oh, are being charged? I was, I was say, not able to find to that. 30 schools. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if it's like, Yikes. does AMCAS still do that thing where if you get to a certain number, it's like, you get like one the first price for the 10 pain. free or for, not free, but for the price. And then for each one, it's like another 15 or something. Like it's a reduced price. Yeah, it's like 140, like I think, to send your app out somewhere around that. And then it's like an extra like 10, 20 bucks per school. Yeah. After the first 10. But that's AMCAST. This is like a this yeah. is like mm-hmm. a, another yeah. charge on top of that, yeah. which if you don't have money, it's yet another. If you don't have money. I thought we were trying to, right. be, like, we're trying to reduce barriers, like it's, not like denied. It, like when you when you just look at this, it's like, oh, twelve dollars. That's not very much. But you know, it's like for some people, that's groceries. Yeah, I, I know. Yeah. Like, yeah. absolutely. You know, well, and you know, the other thing that scares me about this, Dave, is that I've been hearing whispers of a potential, basically, a Casper exam for med school that will give you a score and kind of almost not really replace step one but allow schools to have another number. So it's like we made step one pass fail. They're going to try to grab onto something. Yeah. There's the thought that they might start adding something like a personality exam, an ethics yeah, exam into yeah. med school. This is the sort of no effective personality. Yeah. This is the sort of thing we've been speculating about. Like, no, they, they got rid of, they got rid of step one or 
they got rid of a, a number for step one. How are they going to, what are they going to replace it with? Mm-hmm. They're going to replace it with something. That's the thing is, did you, you know, I've heard some interesting arguments more recently of like, you don't, people don't like being graded on step one, but what, what do you want them to grade you on? Let, let's say step two goes pass fail. Are they going to go all the way back to your, you know, your undergrad organic You're chemistry scores? Your Avgar score, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I'm not really down with this. I, I also feel like, I mean, I would be very surprised if Iowa were to do this because I, I mean, I don't know. I don't get to make decisions on these things, right? It wouldn't right? be Iowa nice. I would, would not be, be surprised, actually, if you Iowa would not be surprised. I would not I mean, be surprised. I, they, we, 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 I, I feel like we sort of have, from what I've, Jesus Christ. Take your time. And <laughs> talking with, you know, admissions folks over the years, I feel like we have pri- prided ourselves on a sort of personal touch mm. during the interview process oh, mm-hmm. and outsourcing our, dis- our, our outsourcing part of our decision making to a for-profit company strikes me as something that at least in principle we would object to doing there is a conflict of interest there yeah i think it highly depends on I think the med school will start to get, you know, as step one and step two start to increase their amount of ethics questions, my guess is the med school will start to see how their students are scoring. And if the students are scoring lower on the ethics portion, it may incentivize the med school to be like, oh, maybe we should be testing but before our, they come in but or our, just increasing the pre curriculum mm-hmm. But the way I see it, our job, and I say our, not my job, but our job is to look at applicants and decide which ones are going to be right for the Carver College of Medicine which and, and which ones are going to be right for the profession. That's mm-hmm. our mm-hmm. job. Mm-hmm. Not Altus. Not, you know... The, You're making a really interesting point about something I've noticed kind of happening in general. A lot of things being developed for convenience that are dulling our judgment. And mm-hmm. you're right. You're taking power away from the school to determine these things according to their own judgments and they're outsourcing to this company. Who is this company? And what, what's the scientific basis for these judgments that they're making? And yeah, it's more convenient, but you're also, you're sacrificing creative control and direction for convenience, which is kind of the theme of modern life these yeah. days in general. Well, I guess it's important to say that it is up to the schools how they use it. You know, like nobody makes that oh, decision fair. for them. I'm just not sure what, if you bring them in for an interview, it seems like that's a good time to make that judgment i mean you're already doing you know for instance multi mini interviews or whatever they call it or you know you know you're already asking them you know to go through these scenarios like we do what what is it called pcs uh, oh um or, cbl cbl like uh, case-based CBL. learning mm-hmm. discussion to sort of you know start so start that judgment. conversation kind mm-hmm. of thing it's, i just I, you know I, I feel like it's it's our job to do that just do it you know, I'm you know, not, stop I'm not trying a, to stop. Stop trying to make other people do it for you. I want to throw something quickly in here that we got a comment about to counteract the uh, whole typing speed thing. They have a feature now where you can record your answer verbally. Oh, on Casper. Oh, yeah. How'd you get oh, that? I'm so jealous. Uh, Back in my day, we had to type oh. things out fast. <laughs> Back in my day. <laughs> yeah. What I was going to say is cloud. I'm not opposed to administering like psych evals of incoming med students. I actually think that might be a good idea. However, caveat there is that a lot of the DSM and you know the field of psychiatry in general is very culturally biased. And then you would create a lot of disadvantages for people who don't fit the mainstream or the mold. Are you saying prior to acceptance or after? Honestly, throughout. Yeah. Because um, there's, I mean, we talk about you know, depression and anxiety and all these things that happen in med school, but like nothing is meaningfully being done. There's a mm-hmm. lot of different attempts. And I, I know we did away with the wellness passport. Oh, um, we did officially. It, it, it is no so. longer. Yeah. yeah. That's exciting. Don't you have a sound bite for that? Burr, like, burr, 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 burr. <laughs> <laughs> that rap, rap horn or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, they did so away with Aline, that. Uh-huh. I see one big problem with that is if the school's administering psych evals on their students, there creates a massive, massive violation of privacy so, and a power dynamic, potentially. What I like, 
if it was something like the counseling center and having a mandatory initial session and then i mean you have to choose whether or not to go back but i raised the question before like we're exposed to a lot of things throughout this and if you have trauma in your background that's related to anything you're about to see it can resurface and really affect your time in school and if you're able to catch that earlier and start addressing it you may have a better time making it through i do agree with that yeah and and the counseling center you know follows all of hipaa it's completely separated from the dean's office Mm -hmm. but with I, I don't know if anybody would be trained well enough, though, to be able to talk to someone, mm-hmm. you know, even prior to med school and be able to say this person is not going to do well, has a high risk of dropping out and, you know, being stuck with two hundred thousand dollars in loans. I don't know how you can really interpret that because, mm-hmm. you know, we have students here that have had that happen and maybe mm-hmm. did not have or maybe did or did not have red flags. But how can you say that that student is going to be the one that ends up dropping out? That's not fair to that student. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's also not fair for the student to then you know not make it through and then be stuck with two hundred thousand dollars of loans and no MD behind their name. Yeah, so. I mean, I guess you're right. We have an obligation to not just to admit students and make them into doctors, but to make sure that we don't admit students who wouldn't be well equipped mm-hmm. to finish and be successful. I mean, the whole point is to make doctors. It's not like yeah. undergrad where. You know. Yeah, give us your money, whatever. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little bit. But. Or make sure that we are equipping our students with those things. Also a yeah. thing. And yeah. I think I think that's the question I have because there's a lot of ways that people don't get equipped with certain emotional skills and like never have anybody to, to teach those things or don't even know that they're not handling them well. But could still be very like successful in the most traditional mm-hmm. ways of the word success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Listeners, if you ask us a question, it means that I don't have to make something up to talk about on the show. And the show becomes what you want it to be. So send your questions to the shortcoats at gmail.com or leave a message at 347-SHORT-CT. We'll talk about it on the show. Something I've noticed in the MSTP is that like we have like a, a lot of stories have filtered their way to me of in particular men in the MSTP not understanding boundaries and not just in our program, but in other programs too. And part of it is just I, part of it is like the bigger culture of like People ending up in MSTPs because, again, they've been told from a very early age, like, you're going to cure cancer. Like, you're going to get a Nobel Prize. Don't let anything get in your way. Is it the school's job to address these kind of disturbing and, like, potentially, you know, negative, harmful, like, a little bit? I mean, you're bringing these people into the fold and you're exposing other students to them. And so... I don't know. Where's the line? Do we draw the line where it starts affecting their grades? Or what if they're still high performing, but also like kind of a harm to other students or harm to themselves? Mm. I don't know. I think the last part the you may raise an interesting point that I've been thinking about a lot over the past couple months. And I think it's it has a lot to do with burnout. And I actually think the way we evaluate med students in maybe particularly clerkships encourages burnout in that the way you're evaluated is by positive or negative feedback. And so you work so hard to get that good job, that attaboy, you know, and that's the little bit of dopamine that you get, that you get like real, you feel really good about that when you're told that you're doing a good job and that's how you're evaluated all the way through by other people telling you you're doing a good job, not by, being happy necessarily with yourself or teaching, you know, being satisfied with your own performance by having the performance evaluated evaluated externally. And so when you get finished with residency and you're now in attending, nobody's telling you that anymore. Nobody's saying, good job. That was a good test. I like your differential. Mm-hmm. And so you no longer have that outside source of, you know, of positive feedback. And suddenly nobody has taught you how to be satisfied with your own work and proud of the work you're doing. And so I think that ends up, I think that just the personalities that we develop in med school actually contributes to that burnout. Mm-hmm. I've, you're so right, by the way. Like we, there is no transition point between like external sources of validation to learning how to validate yourself, which mm-hmm. is something we talk about a lot on the show. Well, it would be interesting to find out what, how, that changes as you get into residency. That's true. And then 
be in attending because I suspect that that once you get into residency, there may be a more gradual slope, maybe a gradual reduction in external validation, or maybe it's just completely cut off at the knees. I'm not Yeah, really I sure. don't know. You still get evaluated every month. Like yeah. your, your attendings are still writing evals on you every single time they work on with yeah. you. So you're I don't know still much about like how, performing a yeah, little I bit. I don't know much about the moment to moment, you know, what it's like to be a resident otherwise, other, yeah, other than it's kind of grueling, but. <laughs> yeah. And the, just a little. The presumption to to add to what Mackenzie is saying is there's the presumption that the people who are judging you have good judgment and are in a position to judge you. Always an issue. Yeah. yeah. The cycle repeats itself. Somebody who ended up not getting those coping skills gives a bad eval and it just continues and medicine still malignant at the end of the day. And it's the same in academia, honestly. Like you wonder how you end up with these like very abusive PIs who just throw temper tantrums when people say no to them. I know those people. I've seen those students mm-hmm. who misbehave like crazy and everyone's oh, it's okay, you know, she's just a kid. She doesn't no, she doesn't know she does know better. Like you're talking about twenty two year olds, people who are grown ups essentially, but haven't learned how to regulate their emotion or like just how to be a good employee there's a lot (laughs) I I was just talking to someone about this the other day though there's a a lot of people not just the MSTP but a lot of people in med school that have clearly never been punched in the face for saying the wrong thing to the wrong person don't understand (laughs) are we advocating for face punching don't condone violence here (laughs) maybe no I'm just kidding you know is that the right way to respond to no and and that that's not how you teach someone you would change medical education though you know what I'm saying yeah (laughs) Yeah, you'd have a lot less entitlement, for sure. (laughs) You'd have a lot less audacity and bravado. I think it goes back to the point that we've been discussing is the selection process. They're trying to, with Casper and AMC has their own situational judgment test too now. They're trying to find those people that, I'm not going to go with the get punched in the face metaphor, maybe like somebody who's worked in food service. Mm -hmm. If you've ever been yelled at as a server... And then been tipped one dollar by whoever yelled at you. That's a pretty humbling experience. And not enough people go into medicine that have had a background like that. Just as an example, mm-hmm. where like you have been humbled, been told by somebody that you're not like hot shit, that you've been told no in your life before. And because of that, we run into the issues with personalities in healthcare and in medicine particularly. Or just um, the number where, of people like who've Alisa, never had an actual job. There's, yeah. there's like a lot of attending's your first job yeah there's like you go from nothing to suddenly the mm-hmm. top of the food chain and yeah. you don't have any experience of being the bottom of the food chain i i mean if you don't face hardships do you have to ever develop certain skills sometimes if you have faced hardships and you didn't have people support you through those did you develop those skills mm. there's lots of different reasons why people aren't going to be a equipped but also yeah talking about if you if you've never worked and then that's your your first job along with like that privilege i've seen it's it's there there's just because you're really intelligent and gifted in that regard there's a lot of things you can be lacking in that we need we need to make sure we're coming out on the other side with some of those things so that we aren't hurting people and we're not putting ourselves in situations where somebody wants to punch us in the face. Mm-hmm. Well, and those same type of people are more than likely not going to be empathetic physicians, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, especially if they've never had a job where they were making, you know, less than, let's say, even $15 an hour. You know, I think then you start using words like medicine noncompliance rather than realizing people literally can't afford medications mm-hmm. or can't pick exactly. them up. Or, um, and, and Kate and I have been talking about this lately just because, well, we've been talking about lately about, you know, person-centered language. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So instead of saying the the addict in, in the ER, you would say the person who is using drugs. It puts the person first right. instead of the thing that they were doing exactly. to remind you that they're a person first, not a drug addict. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, a, it's a small distinction. Sorry, David. It's something I've heard recently is people say enslaved people as opposed to slaves mm-hmm. in order mm-hmm. to emphasize that they're people. Yeah. People mm-hmm. on onto whom a state of being was inflicted as opposed to slaves being their identity. Which, right? I mean, this is not, this is, I should say, this is not a problem inherent to medicine. This is a problem inherent mm-hmm. to, I don't know, humanity maybe, where, you know, we focus on the thing 
mm-hmm. that isn't the person and more the behavior which we find to be negative, and that's how we define somebody. Of course, nobody can be defined by one parameter. Mm-hmm. It's like you dehumanize. Use, you use yeah. a label and exactly. like make that their ultimate identity, right. and completely forget that it's just one part. I do want to get to another new thing. Well, an, uh, another new th- new hoop to jump through, Mackenzie. What's all this about secondary applications for residency? Yeah, so they're calling them like supplemental. So let's let's start with the residency application process, the I traditional process. I need that background. Okay. All right. So ARIS, which what does ARIS stand for? The E residency application system. The e residency. E residency. So e just stands for e electronic. electronic. Yeah. Okay. So ARIS is the online application service that um, fourth year medical students use to apply for residency. It, it's basic. It's very similar to AMCAS in that you you know you have biographical information, you have a personal statement, you've got transcripts, things like that that all get uploaded, letters of recommendation. And then you select your the program you're interested in and the schools that you wish to apply to. So this year they have now introduced the idea of sup- a supplemental application which is going to sound very familiar to people who are applying to AMCAS. And this year they've said that this year they've said that they're free. That might be an important thing that is this year. (laughs) That there are uh, three parts to this supplemental application. They're only applying to internal medicine, surgery, and uh, dermatology this year. There's basically three parts. They're going to be asking for your geographic information by regions, urban, suburban, or rural setting, which that's already really already included in your application so it's kind of just an additional place to put it i guess additional information about your most meaningful work volunteer or research experience so just expanding again on what's already included probably in your cv and then the third part is an indication of their top residency programs of interest so this is where the so the traditional wait the, like the traditional experience that last point yeah, yeah we'll, we'll get the there meat. we'll get the signal where you want to go yep. yeah signaling is That's what they're new. calling it so so the traditional okay. the traditional application process is processes you fill out eris you you submit it in september in september you get invited to interviews that ranges typically from october through january and then you submit a rank list of the programs that you want to go to. And then the programs also rank And the you. programs rank you. And then from that, the yep. National Residency Matching Program algorithm determines the best fit. And then you open uh, an envelope and you're obligated to go there for the next right. three to seven years of your life. So the, que- <laughs> so the question is, where does this secondary application process come in? Because of that last point, the last point mm-hmm. of preference signaling, I didn't see... In that email or elsewhere, at what stage that secondary application it or... opens in August. Okay. And it sounds like it's going to be submitted with the rest of the application. So I'm not sure what preference you're signaling there since you don't... You have an interview. ...technically have a preference. You shouldn't technically have mm-hmm. a preference yet. Yeah, it's very interesting because... So previously... I, and I get what they're trying to do. They're trying to actually limit, in a way, the number of interview requests that maybe certain strong applications have. And so uh, they really? haven't really said, I think that's their idea. So that oh. like, pay, pay, so say you have a 270, like a super high step one score, a super high step two score, 73 publications, like you're a stellar applicant. But sometimes these stellar applicants, for some reason, still apply broadly. They have like their top, you know, five schools that they really want to go to. But then they've also applied to more like middle tier, lower tier that are considered their safe schools. But some of these say middle tier schools may look at this applicant and if this applicant has, you know, has their five preferences and they're not included, they're, they might think this this applicant is, doesn't really want to come here and they're obviously going to be accepted to one of these other schools. It would not make sense for us to offer them an interview, even though they're a good applicant, because we have better odds at matching maybe less stellar applicants that have, a, you know, have us listed on their preference list. So that's, I think, what they're trying to do. But it definitely makes, you know, students that maybe don't know if they're a stellar applicant a little bit more nervous or students that are like middle tier applicants. You know, it 
especially for those of us that don't know where we want to go, how are we supposed, if we have really no experience with some of these schools, how are we supposed to list our top five when we've never visited there? We might. I mean, it, it is possible that we're getting ahead of ourselves because That's all it says is preference signaling. Yes. That doesn't. That Did t- ENT do this last year? Yes. I believe they've done it in the past. They've yeah. done preferences. I wonder how that went, if it was beneficial. So they did something like Brian tokens. Carmody did a breakdown of it. They did something like tokens. Like you could give tokens or something like that to... Is it urology that did tokens? I don't, I don't know. It's we talked about it on the programs. show. I don't remember. We did. Yeah. We did, yeah. I, but, that was, but that preference signaling took place at a different point in the cycle. Yeah, after interviews, yeah. I believe. So uh, you and, had and already like been, had a chance to discover what you liked and disliked about the programs that you applied to. Yeah. And there's definitely been, you know, you've been technically allowed to, I think, email like letters of intent to the programs that you really liked. And sometimes they, you know, emailed you regardless of, you know, and the thing is in the past, I don't think programs have been allowed to ask. I think it's been considered a match violation specifically asking where you're being, you're ranking them. And so I think this, I don't think it's technically a match violation. I think it's a gray area. So well, it, it could be interesting. So this year, it's just those three programs, and they're calling it a trial year. Yes, the AAMC will evaluate the effectiveness of these new application components before considering expanding it to additional specialties. So, the, the thought is that it's due to step one going pass-fail, that it allows programs to have another metric to weed out students that would likely not want to go there anyways well Mm. let me pause for a moment and say that our sponsor this week is panacea financial a company founded by two doctors that were frustrated as medical trainees that banks didn't seem to understand the unique uh needs of those in the medical field so they built a company just for medical students and doctors with nationwide digital banking panacea financial provides medical students with free checking that includes no atm fees nationwide high-yield savings accounts, a free personal banker, around-the-clock customer support, and with loans designed with you in mind. No one should borrow more than they need, but with Panacea Financial, fourth-year medical students can get money as needed in as little as 24 hours with their PRN personal loan. That has an interest rate half of a usual credit card, no co-signer requirement, and it's fully digital. So instead of running up credit card debt, you could try their PR and personal loan that is designed to give you a better way to cover expenses such as residency applications and relocation or board exams. Some customers actually use it to pay off toxic credit card debt. In addition, medical students can have a period of no or reduced payments on their PR and personal loan. So join the growing number of medical students and physicians nationwide that expect more from their bank. Go to PanaceaFinancial.com today to open your free account. Panacea Financial is a division of Premise member FDIC. Thank you so much, Panacea Financial, for your support. I used it to buy new chairs this week. They come in at the end of July. See, the chairs you guys are sitting in, these chairs that you're sitting in, yeah, they actually belong to the communities, the learning communities, our learning communities here. Um, and Why are the, you narking on yourself? And during the well, I I, I had permission during during oh, okay. the during the pandemic when nobody was here in the building. I was like, well, I need some chairs, so I talked to to Sam, the learning communities coordinator, and and she talked to the mayors, and the mayors were like, yeah, he can borrow them. Well, this week she came to me and said, we are taking them back. Ouch! Oh no! And I was kind of I, I I will say that I was kind of hoping that everybody would forget that I had these chairs, <laughs> but nobody forgot. And so now I'm forced to give them back. The but pi- the Pied Piper came back to collect. Huh? Yes, it was a very sad experience because I like how we're set up here. You know, I feel good. It feels comfortable to me. Yeah. But anyway, um, so yeah, I went to a certain furniture store in town yesterday and bought and bought some better chairs. I think they're better. You've been talking. You you really framed the story from a negative perspective. Like, guys, that's I have what I bad do. news. <laughs> I got you new chairs. Bad news. I'm so sorry. Well, if it weren't for for our sponsors, I couldn't. I I, I probably would have. I don't know. We would have been back to the the swivel chairs that we used to have from the classroom. Sit, sitting on the crisscross applesauce. Yeah. Yeah. Listeners, if you ask us a question, it means that I don't have to make something up to talk about on the show. And the show becomes what you want it to be. So send your questions to the shortcodes at gmail.com or leave a message at 347-SHORT-CT. We'll talk about it on the show. 
I want to talk about Britney Spears. Do you really? I do. I, I do want to talk about this, too. I, I do. I didn't, because, I didn't read about it, but it's important. So she, as I understand it, she appeared in court this week for the first time since she was forced into a court-ordered conservatorship in the mid-aughts due to what was deemed, you know, mental illness and substance abuse and and some weird, weird behavior. And there that, was one... That, that th- all child stars eventually, you know, developed to have because they live in a weird world. They live I in mean, a very weird world. Yeah. So I, don't, I don't know that all of them do, but I don't think it's surprising or unexpected right. when mm-hmm. certain ones do. You gotta feel... Yeah, there's... I have sympathy for for that problem and I think a lot of people do but um so she she got up basically she got up in court for the first time I mean this is a long time that she's been in this conservatorship she's now 39 years old and she talked about how she needed to that she needed the court to to basically end that conservatorship so she could live her life and she it was a long impassioned you know basically plea to the court about the the terms of or her experience in the conservatorship. But there was one detail that I think caught many people's attention, which is that her conservators, which include her father and then uh, a court appointed conservator, I think later, her conservators have not allowed her to have her IUD removed. Hmm. That's interesting. That's an interesting ethical detail. That seems a bit coercive can i tell you what a golden opportunity for pro-choice people and pro-life people to come together to fight for what they both believe in which is allowing women to have the choice you know the power and agency over their own reproductive activities and also for the pro-life people to be like hey this woman wants to create life why are we stopping her she seems pretty stable she's you know, financially liquid. She is in a stable relationship. She's actually a pretty good parent to her two kids, right? Her two teenage kids who seem pretty well adjusted. So, yeah, you guys. And and a conversation about disability rights as as well, because I don't know a whole lot about her situation with a conservatorship, but didn't it start around the time that she shaved her head? Yeah. When you think about like how long she's been in the spotlight like how much of her life she has not had control over and how like that in itself was just and it like an attempt to control an aspect of her life yeah i mean her entire life yeah and so then now being saying treated that you are struggling mentally you're not allowed to get married. You can't have kids. You have to keep this in. Uh, that's really. It seems like one, like a couple oh. of mistakes changed the course of her life for like almost 20 years. Yeah. And how. But also what, what's what? a mistake? I, you know, like I don't. Rem- I don't. Oh, yeah. I, I remember very little about the events that led up to the conservatorship. But, you know, she did the shaver head thing. And, you know, who she hasn't pu- shaved their head when they were. Tw- you know, like. Yeah. Who- <laughs> She had a, a kind of public breakdown, which, by the way, is a breakdown that every person has at some point in just their lives. Not just in not in public. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Not in front of cameras. Right. And not someone everyone's paying attention mm-hmm. to. You know. Meanwhile, Nick Cannon is expecting his eighth child this fourth year. Fourth this year. I think it's four. Holy crap. Fourth this year. Eighth overall. Yeah. Way to go. You made a basketball team. But <laughs> no one's stopping him. And let me be honest, Nick Cannon has said some equally disturbing things, actually, on on many shows, which for me has called into question his mental state. But no one's stopping him from spending the millions of dollars he earned as a child actor. So I don't know. Just look at Michael Jackson. There's a whole nother can of worms there of being a child star and never really kind of going back to our conversation earlier, never really being told no or being given like a set of guidelines to follow because all you did was make a lot of money for your talent and then you never actually got adapted to real life. But yeah. I guess getting back to my question here, is it ever anyone's right, whether it be the state or the government or whatever, to determine that somebody can't have children? I mean, that's essentially what's happening here. That's a big question you just mm-hmm. asked. Mm-hmm. I mean, Very that's crazy. Question. Yeah. Eugenics has entered the chat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. There was there is a actually I have a book somewhere on my desk about how eugenics in the US when 
Like we were just starting off as a nation. Virginia actually had a very historical case of somebody being forced, forcibly sterilized as a decision reached in a court of law because they were considered intellectually disabled. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they were sterilized. They had one kid and their child also was sterilized with that against their consent. Their child was also sterilized. They had a child and then they were ruled to be too intellectually disabled to reproduce. So both her Good and Lord. her daughter were sterilized. All right. You know, even more recently than that, remember how they were sterilizing migrant women? Yeah. In in these in, ICE detention centers? In the centers? ICE detention centers. That was a few months ago. Yeah, that wasn't long ago. Yeah. It wasn't long ago. It hasn't stopped. It hasn't stopped. I, I just find it kind of disturbing to it's very to think about very very disturbing disturbing line that is being crossed with the wrong party or intent i don't know if there is i mean it's such a basic fundamental human function or animal function to reproduce that i'm not sure that there's i i'm not sure that there's ever a great reason to say you can't have children I mean, I can think of a few reasons why some people might want to do that. Yeah. But I think in the end, it's it doesn't feel right to me. Can I tell you, it works in the reverse, too. There's a lot of women that face a weird amount of social pressure when they say, I don't want kids. People are like, mm-hmm. but it's your duty to yeah, have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your mm-hmm. body can make kids. That is another form of reproductive coercion, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Your purpose in life is supposed to be a baby making machine. Do it. Duh. I know. I'm a little behind Nicole. But. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I mean, it works in every direction, right? The point that you're trying to make is where's the line between what society is allowed to decide for you versus the decisions you make, right? Yeah. Well, I, I see some scary comments occasionally online. Of course. Um, yeah. That's where the, scary the, comments. I see, yeah. yeah. Okay. Are. Well, I sort by controversial a lot too. So. <laughs> um, but. It's very entertaining. That that's a Reddit reference, by the way, for people who don't get it. But people saying we're overpopulated, we need to start limiting the number of kids families can have, and there are countries that do this. Yes. But I'm very troubled by people saying that because it's not necessarily telling people you can't have any kids, but now it's saying when you can and when you have to stop, and that concerns me as well. Mm-hmm. I wonder how in those countries like China who have had in the past, I think it's changed fairly recently, Mm -hmm. um, one child per couple rules. I wonder how evenly that's applied to, Mm -hmm. or whether there are exemptions for certain classes or kinds of people or or whatever. I don't really know the answer to that. I just know that whenever there's a, whenever there's a rule, there are always certain people or certain kinds of people who are exempt from the rule. That policy also backfired, and they ended up having a significantly uneven ratio of male to female Mm -hmm. births. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a lot of that was because there was pressure to have male children versus female children. So, Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's a crazy, uh, it's crazy situation that that uh, Brittany finds herself in. You know, her whole story is really tainted by misogyny, kind of start to finish, from from the day she set foot on that Mouseketeers, like, relaunch stage. And she was probably nine or ten years old. But from that moment on, society, I think, forced on her, like, projected on her, I should say, a lot of really weird perceptions about women, teenage women, a.k.a kids the choices that they make i mean i don't know maybe you guys are old enough to remember that press conference where she she had a press conference to let people know she was still a virgin because like people needed to know and it was a big deal and it was just yeah it was crazy and then she i think made a comment about the war which at the time was like about the war in iraq which at the time was like the safest possible stance you could take. I think she said, look, I support the president. Like, I trust him. We elected him. And at that time, that was George W. Bush. And a lot of people got really mad. I was like, what What was she supposed to say? She was 15. What is she supposed to be like, f***ing yeah. Will Schlesinger? You know, know about Paul? I mean, she's not a diplomat. Yeah, she said a very how, reasonable thing for a teenager. How many 15-year-olds have a position on the, 
on the war in Iraq. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, That's like that's like uh, the, there was a news channel like right when 9/11 happened that went to Ja Rule for an opinion <laughs> on the events. Like, where is Ja Rule? Where does Ja Rule stand on this? <laughs> Bring in uh, Ja Rule and Madeline Albright, please. Come on. Yeah, both of you, contemporaries in modern politics. Yeah. Oh, we live in such a strange world. Yeah. <laughs> well. I think it says a lot, too, about just in general how not only just for Britney, but for women in general, how little control we have over the contraception we choose to use, regardless of whether or not it's that you need a prescription for oral contraceptives, which I don't necessarily disagree with until we maybe have a, a little bit safer options for certain ones. But the fact that you, you know, the best way we currently have to take an IUD out is that you have to go to a physician to to get it done, that we haven't you know, made a way that we can take those out ourselves. I mean, theoretically, yes, you can. You can, you know, people do all the time. They grab those strings and yank them right out. They do? No, that's, of course they do. That's how we do it in the office. Oh. We still just yank it out. Oh, okay. It happens accidentally, too. I yeah, thought there yeah. was a special, yeah. you know, proceed, you go in there and you push a button. No, and you, if up. you see this, if you, you can use a speculum, it's easier and, you know, a special, you know, forceps, but women do I know, it anyways. I know so little about, about things, about the world. It's you're they're pretty rudimentary yeah, technology. Not, I mean, it's one of it's one of the reasons that like I you know, I follow different contraceptive technology as you know not super super close but always following different news articles about new and upcoming methods and you know some of the things that they're coming up with will definitely have a little bit more autonomy. One of the methods that never gets talked about a lot is like a vaginal ring. I don't know why we don't talk about it a lot. Because I think it's an excellent in-betweener of having your own autonomy that you can put something in and you can take it out when you want. So this is a, this is a, I'm imagining this is a device impregnated with hormones. Yep, yep. It's a, it's a dual. So it's estrogen progesterone combo. Mm -hmm. So it works to prevent ovulation is yep. the primary function. It, it's just like a flexible little rubber ring that you place, you know, intravaginally. You can't feel it. Most of the time your partner can't feel it. And then you just you just leave it there. And the recommendation is like to take it like the one that I actually have at home is a three month. So you just you can take it out. You're s supposed to take it out after a month, have keep it clean and then you put it back in. But the technology is they're doing research right now to try to see, hey, well, what if you don't take it out and you just leave it for three months or for longer and coming up with more and more medication for longer term. So I think it's going to be you know, a really good alternative for women that are like, you know, I don't really want to put a seven year IUD in, have to go to a physician if I want to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. You know, if I don't have a PCP, if I'm lost to follow up, you know, things like that get complicated. You know, if they can come up with, oh, I can put this ring in and leave it for a year, never have a period, which sounds is amazing. And if I decide to get pregnant, I can just pull it out and I'm done. I don't have to go talk to anybody. I don't have to get permission to pull it out. It's up to me. And you also don't have to worry about taking a pill every day and forgetting that and accidentally getting pregnant. So I'm hoping that as technology improves, there's going to be better and better alternatives for women to have good contraception where they still have, you know, control. Mm -hmm. Just had the weirdest thought. Oh no, what is this thought? But I have no idea whether I should say it out loud. <laughs> well, you have to say, you can always edit it out. You, you, you just these... laughed at a funeral is what you just did. did you most it? inappropriate time you ever. ever. Have these thoughts? Look, I'm going to preface this by saying, that we all have unwanted thoughts, okay? <laughs> this is gonna be weird. Okay, you're, you're setting it, this up to be really right, weird. I don't know how. I don't. I honestly. I mean, this is definitely weird. I just don't know how weird people will find it. But I'm glad. I'm. I'm glad. I, I wish AJ was here to protect me. All right. So. I'm so weird. He can, he will. Is Dave about to say something that will get him punched in the face? <laughs> I'm just I have to give a very male perspective on something. No, 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 no. no Is it about to mansplain? It's one, of those, it's one of those weird things that pops into your head that you have no idea what, you know, that yeah. you have no idea where it came Stop from. Stop burying Dave, the lead. I will, just tell I will us. jump on that grenade for you. Just, just uh, go All on. right. Go so my, my idea is a business idea. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, like, okay. I, I have an IUD removal business. <laughs> It's run out of a windowless van right. behind the target. Because, because I mean, you know, if, if you could take it out yourself, maybe you don't want to do that, right? You know, there sure. are, there are, there are women who don't. You know, they don't want to get down there. They just, you know, wanted to want it to be done with, and that's you know, they go the <laughs> like. Where did this idea come from that I had? In and out, discreet service. <laughs> Thank what, you. What a fabulous capitalist you are! You saw an opportunity, yeah. a great business opportunity. I think you should do it. 
and then bring the money here so we can buy even better chairs than whatever it is. That you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I want to make a caveat. There are complications that can arise. Mm. Oh, okay. You know, there's yeah. also the possibility that you're, the strings won't be there. The Maybe the, the IUD has migrated. Well, then you prefer that the time to the tier two yeah, service yeah, yeah. provider. You like, know, if you look up in there, you're like, I don't see something that's easy to yank out. You should go see an OB. Is it's that, like, like when you call step? tech support and they're like, oh, I, I don't know how to fix that. Then they send you up to tier two. You know? Dave's like, we'll also offer referrals. Yes. <laughs> I've got Very the, credible. I've got the UAHCOB right like, department on speed dial. <laughs> it's a converted food truck, actually. It sits right outside the ER. Yeah. Oh, I, okay. I'm glad I, I, I'm glad I said I'm it. I'm, I'm glad I said it because I needed to to just get it out there in the world. Otherwise, I was going to not be able to function. Anymore. We were going to be speculating all day about what you were giggling about. So I'm glad you told us, <laughs> especially because we were just talking about like rings. I'm like, Dave's got some really weird idea about a vaginal ring and what to do with it. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, I'm glad I got it out there. That's our show. AJ, Aline. Nicole McKenzie, thank you for being on the show with me today. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, guys. Uh, And what kind of, I don't know, IUD removal business owner would I be if I didn't thank you, Shortcoats, for making us a part of your week? If you're new here and you like what you heard today, follow the show wherever fine podcasts are available. Our editors are AJ Chowdhury and Eric Bozard, and Alex Belzer is our marketing coordinator. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine Student Government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. I'm Dave Etler saying, Don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week. Yay! Hi, Shortcoats. Look, life in medical education, life in America, life in the world is often difficult. And I often wish I could help. All I have is this podcast, but in my wildest dreams, you have the support you need to lead a life of your choosing. You deserve to be happy, healthy, and successful in whatever ways you define those words. So if you need support because you've experienced racism, discrimination, harassment, mental health crises, I want you to be able to get the help that you need. And so I'm going to put some links in the show notes to some resources that you can use. But the bottom line is that for what it's worth, I see you. I know you're out there. I wish I could do more. Maybe I can in ways that I don't understand yet or know about. But I see you and I'm glad you're here and other people are too. 